Welcome. Uh, it's good to have you with us. We're in a series called Destined, and we're taking a look at some of the ways that God has destined his people to resemble his son, Jesus Christ. He actually calls us to resemble him in every way, but we're looking in these four weeks at the ways that we're uh, to resemble him in our impact in the world, in our pursuit of greatness by moving downward and outward rather than trying to climb a ladder and uh, accumulate for ourselves, that we're really truly called to be servants. And uh, so that's what we're looking at this morning. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. And uh, as you're turning there, I, I have to say, I, I find it fascinating how the human brain works. I, I think that uh, human brains seem to just work phenomenally well under pressure. Have you noticed this? And anybody in here make the excuse that you, uh, for procrastination, that you just, you do a better job if there's more stress? And so you just kind of delay, 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 and then you cram it all in at the end. It's because we know innately that pressure and time limits somehow focus our brain and we kind of remove all the other things that grab for our attention. And it's interesting to me, too, that when there's limited time, it also does more than just focus our brain. It also seems to reveal something about ourselves, about what's really important I mean, we all know when we have limited hours left on a project, we make decisions based on what we think is a priority. It reveals, uh, the decisions reveal our priorities and our values. And when we know we have limited time with loved ones, we tend to just cherish those moments. Uh, see, limitations uh, help us see what's really important to us in life. And it was actually no different for Jesus himself. And in fact, the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, is set in the context where Jesus is entering literally his last hours alive before he is arrested, tried, crucified, and uh, buried. And so uh, he is really down to his last little bit of life. And it's, it's with this limited time that we see his incredible focus. And we see what, what is it that he needs to teach his disciples about who he is and what they need to grasp about him and his work and how they're to live in response to that. So let's take a look at John chapter 13, verse 1 uh, through 17. So follow along with me, either on the screen or in your Bible, uh, where you are. It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God, and that he was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, and took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was about to betray him, and that, and that was why he said that not everyone was clean. Uh, when he had finished washing their feet, 
He put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I do. Uh, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is God's word. Now, what an incredible thing to do when you have limited hours. You're down to a day and a half, roughly, of life, and you do this. Now, I, I full confession here. If I have a deadline and I have to get out the door to something, and I, I really hate being late, uh, I have to tell you, my most inhumane moments are between me and getting out that door to get to whatever it is that I have on my calendar because I just don't like being late. And so when I have limited time, I don't get more others focused. Like I literally just struggle to do that. Uh, I'm learning. It's being discipled into me, but um, mostly through marriage and family. God uses other means as well for others of you, but... This, this is a means of grace in my life. And so um, we, 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 you know, when I have a cold, like I want people to serve me, but Jesus is like, I'm about to die, and this is what he does. He, he serves, he, he, he gets down on his knees. And um, it's interesting to me that he knows not only is it time, his hour, literally his weekend uh, of glory, of death and suffering, uh, has come, but he also knows all things are under his power. In other words, Jesus is moving into the scene with limited time and unlimited power. What would you do with limited time and unlimited power? Look what Jesus does in his limited time and his unlimited power. He serves in total humility and love. He, he moves from cosmic sovereignty to a common ministry with a towel and a wash basin. So we see here uh, in what Jesus is doing, and he says, this is an example for you to follow. Wow, this is actually something I want you to do. He says in verse 14, I'm your teacher, I'm your master. I've washed your feet, now wash one another's. I've done, I've done this as an example that you should do as I've done for you. A servant isn't greater than his master. And now that you know these things, you'll actually be blessed. You'll find God at work in you when you do them. So Jesus is saying in a way that this way, this model, this example that I've shown for you is the way that you are destined to live because you've come under my rule and my reign and you've taken on my yoke, my teaching, and you've partnered yourself to me and so this is now your destiny to live like this. In other words, friends, you and I are destined to serve with Jesus, which is a phenomenal notion. In other words... uh, we, we have a destiny to serve alongside Jesus in a way that is shaped by Jesus and is sustained by Jesus. And that's actually what we're going to look, like, look at today. John 13 is going to show us what is the shape, the mark, the nature of this servanthood, and then how you actually sustain this way of living. Um, first of all, uh, what's the shape of Jesus' way of, of serving? Uh, when we encounter this story of Jesus' final hours before his arrest, uh, we should be stopped in our tracks entirely. Like this, you know, you know, in the Fellowship of the Ring, when Boromir realizes they have to go to Mordor to destroy the ring. And if that's a spoiler um, for you, like, I'm sorry, I don't know where you were for 15 years. But um, 
And so he says, one does not simply walk into Mordor, right? Like we should kind of read this and be like, one does not simply wash feet in first century Jewish society. Okay, we would not actually say that, but if you were to say something nerdy, that might be what you'd say. And uh, you should stop in your tracks. People don't do this. This isn't what is done. Uh, Jesus is actually performing uh, the role of a slave. In fact, actually, Jewish people wouldn't let other Jewish people, even if they had become indentured servants, wash feet. It was a job for the dirty dirty Gentiles. And so um, this is something that is just simply not done. He comes down to be humble. And so this episode is a high definition picture of what Paul says in Philippians 2, that Jesus being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage or exploited. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This first reality about the shape of servanthood is that it is shaped by humility, The Jesus way of serving is shaped by humility. And it's the kind of humility that says, I find enough worth and value in you to come alongside you and lift you up, to spend my energy, my resources, my attention on the other rather than just on me. It's not the kind of humility that says, oh, I don't have any worth. Uh, it, It grasps firmly its worth. Jesus knew he came from the Father and was going to the Father. Humility doesn't lie and say, I'm less than I really am. I'm worth less than I really am. Uh, But on the other hand, humility doesn't come along and demand to be celebrated and served as if we are more than we really are. It's not, which by the way, is what you find everywhere in a narcissistic culture like our own. Really everything is trying to tell you, you are actually what you hoped. More important than the people around you. And if you just owned this, you would feel it. Um, or whatever, whatever the message may be. And so humble service comes from the kind of character that actually refuses to demand things out of entitlement, instead offers things in generosity. And this is uh, not when we serve people and make sure they know how far out of our way we've gone to serve them. Right? You know, by the way, this was really inconvenient for me. Great, you can have your service back, you know. Um, you know, everyone wants to be thought of as humble, don't we? We want people to think, oh, he's a humble person. She's, she's, she's not arrogant. But very few of us actually want the thing itself, humility. Um, you, know, you know who does this really well? At least I, I think, not, not to a T, but a lot of this group of people does a phenomenal job of serving, not with entitlement, but with radical generosity. Moms. Moms are crushing it at this. Uh, Because think about it for a second. You endure almost a year of, at the very least, bodily annoyances, and then like hours of intense pain, and then decades of making sure people are fed and clean and affirmed and encouraged and happy and warm and blah, blah, blah. On it goes, right? And And it's joyful. But I think for a second, like what if my wife Lauren, like related to my youngest, who's 20 months, Eloise, and said, you know what? I have done a lot for you already. I think you can potty train yourself. Don't fall in. Or what if, you know, like, what if she said to Eloise, you know what, I made you. Make your own lunch. Like, it would, it would be ridiculous. So 
Humility is the atmosphere in our character, of our character, in which serving as a lifestyle can actually flourish. Without humility, it will always be starved out. You will not be able to do it. And so uh, without humility, we'll always miss the opportunity to joyfully serve others because we're too busy serving ourselves. Or we'll miss the joy of serving others because we'll find ourselves too important to take joy in uh, the benefit of someone else at our own expense. And now, not only is Jesus' way of serving shaped by humility, but it's also shaped uh, by this incredibly normal, everyday, pedestrian, earthy reality. Notice where all of this happens. It's a dinner. It's it's at the table. And it's just this very physical, very practical reality where dirty feet just need cleaning. And so Jesus does something that is just helpful to real needs on one level. And so the Jesus way of serving is shaped by what is helpful to those around us. I'll I'll never forget when I was visiting uh, Cedar Mill as a college student. Uh, We were driving from Multnomah, which is on 82nd and Gleason, all the way out here. And, you know, like it was... Uh, it was like driving like to Disneyland to like drive through these like nice neighborhoods and we'd show up and we'd serve middle school students and we would we would work with the students and about six of us would pile into this little pickup truck I don't know how we fit and it probably wasn't legal and some became clowns afterwards but we um, we we packed ourselves in there and we'd drive over here every week and we were kind of still deciding whether or not we'd be here and one of the things that happened one day is the car stopped working after church. And I'll never forget, uh, I, it was Dave and Peggy Horine. Well, they were in here during first hour, and I'm not actually sure now if it was really Dave and Peggy Horine. It could have been somebody who was really helpful and had whitish gray hair. And that, there's no shortage of that in our church. So, um, I, uh, <laughs> so but I, I'm pretty sure it was Dave and Peggy Horine who came to our aid. And after church, they stopped and they spent about an hour and he took our friend to the auto store and he helped make us, uh, make, make sure the car was working and got us back to the east side. And he just invested time. I know how I feel after church. I want to go put on sweatpants and I want to eat and I don't want to help anybody else with anything else. But, you know, it was, it was a church that served, and it was a, a person that served. In fact, I'm assuming it was Dave and Peggy, and these are people who don't just serve occasionally, they serve as a lifestyle. They're heavily invested in royal family and in the foster system, and these are people who serve out of character, but serving is what is helpful to the needs around us. And the thing about that is uh, our, what is helpful has to be determined by your context. And on a Thursday night before Jesus' death, the most helpful thing was cleaning dirty feet as a way of pointing to the most fundamental kind of cleaning that the disciples needed. And we'll come to that in a second. But for you, maybe it's your co-worker. They just need someone to validate the pain in their life. Maybe it's your spouse, and the greatest need is for someone to listen. Maybe it's your neighbor, and they just need someone to be a friend. The majority world has a need for drinking water. Washington County has a need for people who will come alongside and take kids who are in the margins. The church has a need for people who will commit to a lifestyle of ministry. Not just a season of it, but a lifestyle of it. So Jesus' way of serving is not only shaped by humility and what's practically helpful, but notice that it's also shaped by what highlights his work on the cross. 
Here's what I mean. Jesus uses this opportunity of humble service to illustrate something far more profound than God's humility, though that's profound enough. He illustrates what that humility accomplishes, what it does, what it came to do, and what it does in you and I. And Jesus and Peter have this little interchange. It's remarkable where he comes to wash his feet and Jesus says, no way, like you're not going to wash my feet Because Peter doesn't understand what's happening in the moment. He doesn't get his dire straits and how deeply he needs someone to clean him. And so Jesus responds in a seemingly harsh way. He says, unless I clean you or unless I wash you, you have no part with me. You have no share with me. It's a word for inheritance. You don't have any role in being partnered to me if I don't wash you. And the entire experience This entire exercise of foot washing pictures the gospel to the disciples. See, it's not our great effort. It's not our moral record that serves God. He will not be indebted to us in that way. Rather, God has to serve us. He has to serve us if we are to have any relationship to him at all. Oftentimes, you know, I think we put God up on this far off mountain as if we cannot reach him. But the reality is we miss God because we're not looking low enough. We're not looking low enough for the God who comes and serves us to lift us up. Because honestly, we may very well be out of our, out of touch with our very real needs. See, the gospel says that our ultimate need isn't clean feet. Of course, no duh. But our ultimate need is a clean heart. See, every person, the Bible says, has been soiled by this thing called sin. Sin we've done, sin done to us and in our presence. And the reality of it is we don't like to take responsibility for it. We don't like to have that on us. But if we asked the people who we've known throughout our lives and we said, you know, how has that person treated you? There would be betrayal there, wouldn't there? There'd be a lack of trust. There would be some moment where we said, that person was really wrong to me. And the reality is all of us as a race of humanity is in rebellion against God. There's this move away from him to say we want to decide our own good. And it's this betrayal of the relationship we have with our creator. And so there's this need to be cleaned up from the very things that defile and twist and bend and turn us wicked to sin. And so Jesus says your biggest need is for you to be clean of sin God must clean us. We're the culprits. We can't clean ourselves. And so he says, I must clean you. The message of John here is that if we're to have any part with Jesus, we have to bring to the table absolutely nothing. You can't come to the table and say, I brought blank, whatever that is for you. What is it that you're bringing to God that you think maybe gets you his favor? Jesus is saying you can't bring it. All you have to bring is nothing to say, bring your dirt and bring your trust. Bring your dirt and bring your trust. Allow me to serve you. Trust my promise that what I do in my serving you cleans you up, forgives you, and sends you out. Trust my promise more than you trust your conscience. Trust my promise more than you trust your merit. See, serving humanity in practical ways is good. It's important. But notice that Jesus doesn't stop there. 
He doesn't neglect it, but he doesn't stop there. He goes all the way to draw the line between the temporal need for clean feet to the eternal need for clean hearts. He draws the line from the temporal solution of water to the eternal solution of his life offered on the cross. Do you see it? You see, even the whole act, he moves from his place of honor at the table and he takes on the form of a servant. He disrobes the divine prerogative of heaven and gets dirty serving. And when, uh, when his disciples are clean, he re-robes and goes back to the place of honor. It's the gospel played out at the table. God comes to take on human flesh to serve the world, to absorb sin and wickedness into himself as he serves in his death, only to be raised in glory and ascend in honor. This is the gospel, friends. So that's the shape of serving. Serving has to be shaped this way if it's to resemble Jesus. It must be humble to say, I'm not too good, I'm not too lofty to get alongside you and lift you up. It has to be helpful. It has to be in touch with what's really a need here. And it ultimately has to reveal God's good news that there's an answer to our need for a universal cleansing. It highlights the work of Jesus. But the question this morning for us, friends, is this, that... that Is this the way my life is shaping up? Certainly that's the shape of Jesus' way. But am I being shaped by these things? Am I growing more humble or am I actually more and more involved in securing for myself what I want and what's convenient? Am I growing in humility, seeking to get alongside others to lift them up? Is my life actually helpful? Is it in touch with the needs of those around? And does it care? And does it highlight the work of the cross? Is there a part of my life and my story that's lifting up Jesus and saying, I'm loving you because I've been loved? So I want to invite you this morning, wherever you are in your story of serving, maybe from disinterested to convicted, to take a step. Some of you are already serving and the rest of the sermon is for you. But if you're not serving in a significant way that's shaping you to be like Jesus, grab the I'm here card in the pew in front of you and fill it out. Stop by the lobby table, fill out the same card and leave it with somebody, an usher or the person at the table, and we'll help you take the next step of connecting to a serving team to begin to say, my time's not too important, there's real needs, and I want to point to the grace of God with my life. Let's take one step further down that road today. But the reality is, the kind of character that lives this way doesn't come easy. So the question is, what sources and resources a life that gives birth to this kind of radical service? Like, how do you get there? How do you sustain a life that runs contrary to our natural inclinations, which is to amass fans and people who just like us and applaud us and think well of us and secure our own convenience and comfort? Well, let's look at what this passage has to say about how does one sustain a life of servanthood, right? And conversely, why we don't sustain a life of servanthood. So the first thing here is to ask the question, did, did Jesus just have some special ability because he was God's son? Is it like, you know, Superman can fly because he's from Krypton, so Jesus can serve because, well, he's from heaven? Like, is that, is that it? Or is Jesus the truly human who actually shows us what it looks like to live the life we're called to live and created to live? Is there actually something in Jesus' example about how he sustains this kind of life that we can follow? We might do the same. Look at verse 3 with me. I think we'll find the first clue. Jesus knew 
that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. See, everything that comes out of Jesus' life, all of his doing, his activity, comes from a place of being. It comes from being in relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit. Because if you want to know what things were like before he first created, it was a party. It was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit just giving love. No, you're awesome. No, you're awesome. No, really, you're awesome. And it's something like that. I don't really know. I don't have a manuscript from those moments of pre-eternity or whatever that is. I don't know even how time works. Um, I can't understand Soren Kierkegaard, so I don't know. Figure it out. But all a freebie that wasn't really meant to edify you in any way. That was just dumb stuff I said in the moment. But here's the reality. Jesus Christ comes and he says, look, I get that I have all authority and power and I get that I came from God and I get that I'm going to God. In other words, my servant life isn't coming from the anxieties of, oh, I better fix some problems that I see. It's coming from security, from I know where I come from. And it's, it's not headed towards fear of like, oh, I better do some stuff if, or, or else. It's actually grounded in confidence that I'm going back to God that I have a a future in his presence. In other words, Jesus' doing all flows out of being connected to God the Father. Here's my concern for us, church. Three weeks into the Destined series, my concern for us is that we would just be a bunch of moralists who do a lot for God as if that was in any way the same thing as being with God and doing things with God, being loved by God. See, we, we, we can easily mistake the depth of being in his presence for all the frenetic activity of doing things for him. See, we need both. You need to do things. Jesus says, look, I've set an example for you. Do it. Okay? But he's not saying to do it as in a way that's disconnected from a relationship and a character that's formed by the presence of God. And so when we serve uh, or we work or we strive as a way of securing acceptance for ourselves, we will either burn out or become bitter. Let me show you how this works. See, when you serve to gain acceptance, either from other people or from God, you reduce yourself to what you can do. And when you reduce yourself to what you can do, you lose your sense of boundaries and you just keep doing and it will lead to burnout. Now, when we serve or we strive to secure God's uh, favor or love for ourselves by our own efforts, we can also grow bitter. Now here's, here's what this looks like, uh, because we think that somehow in all of our action and activity, God is like in our debt, like I'm doing good things for you, God, like so you owe me. And so we get really frustrated when the God that we think is like a vending machine doesn't pour out the blessings that we have designed for ourselves. It's like, hey, I pressed A6, I wanted a Snickers. But why in the world, when I thought that Snickers bar of a new house actually is just me having to take on the burden of caring for an aging loved one? Or I I thought I was going to get this out of the deal. I thought people would like me. I'm losing friends in this gig. And on it goes. And so we become bitter because the vending machine God of our shallow theology doesn't pay out the way that we think. Because we miss the fact that Jesus, God's son, lived a life of suffering. And so when we serve for acceptance from God or we serve for the applause of others, we're really losing any ability to sustain a life of servanthood. First of all, because it won't be a joy. 
It's a duty. I have to do this in order to fill in the blank, in order to get something else. And that something else is usually an idol in our life that we actually love more than we love God. Or it won't be durable because the applause of people always runs out. And there's... And so we just cannot sustain ourselves if that's what's motivating us. But we have to get the order the right way around, like Jesus. So how how do we do that? Look at what he says to his disciples. He says, do you understand what I've done for you? It's the most profound question in this moment. He says, do you understand what it is I've done for you? And it's a crucial question because it comes before he says, I've set an example for you. Now do as I've done for you. You'll be blessed if you do these things. The question comes first. And the question is for us. Do we understand what it is that Jesus has done? And if we do, is that actually enough to sustain and resource a life of servanthood? The clue of how this works is really right in the text. One of the great clues to understanding how this plays out is in verse 2, where Jesus, uh, John says, about Jesus, that he loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. It's interesting. To the end of what? Like to the end of himself, to the end of themselves? To What's the end? The Greek word here for end is the word telos. In other words, it's the full extent. It's the des- destination of love. It's the end of his love, the, com- the all of his love, the complete package. It is complete love. It's love to its completion. And, and, and what does the completeness of God's love look like? Well, the answer is in the text as you flip forward to John chapter 19. The next place where you see this word, telos, is at the cross. Where Jesus himself, after suffering and absorbing sin and wickedness and defilement into himself, says, It is finished. Telestai. See, in his cleaning up toes, this divine pedicure one night, it's a, it's, it's a foreshadow of them, to them, that, that he actually will love them to the end, telos, because it points to the way in which he'll serve them by securing their total whole person cleansing once and for all. And when he does that, he declares his work, telestai. It's finished, complete love. Can we ask for a greater love than that? Is there really anything else we could ask for that would be a greater demonstration of love? It's complete love. And and that means when you are loved by someone who loves completely, it makes you a complete person. You see, the reason we don't serve other people out of humility so often is because we don't really feel and believe ourselves to be complete. And so we spend our energy asking others to make us feel completed. Would you say something that would make me feel complete right now? Would you spend your time and energy serving me so that I would feel complete and like I'm important instead of living out of the security and confidence of God's complete love that we see in John 13 and 19 poured out at the cross and in the resurrection? See, the question is, do you understand what he's done for you? Has it sunk in? Do you, do you understand what he's done for you? That you have the total security of his love, that you come from God, that you're his child, and that you have the confidence of a future with him, that he sent his spirit to be his presence and empowerment, and that you will be drawn into his new creation to share in his rule and reign and kingdom forever. See, when you understand just how significantly you have been loved, it frees you and releases you to love because you've been given the Father and the Spirit through the work of the Son. 
And here's the thing, if we're honest, we know this in our heads, don't we? Some of you have said, okay, great, that's remedial, I knew that. But yet, we don't live with it always on this, our heart. That it makes sense, maybe up here we can do the theological math, but on our hearts it's somehow disconnected from us. That, that we don't have a lasting sense of his love. And so, if we are to sustain a life of servanthood, let me suggest to you that you and I need the power of a greater love. If we're to sustain a life of servanthood, then we must have the power of a greater affection, a greater love, a love greater than the love of self, a love greater than the love of applause, the love greater than the love of anything else that would simply get us to just push through with sheer willpower. We have to have a powerful sense of his love, so much so that we actually delight in and take joy in and want to serve him. So let me illustrate how this works for you with a story you may have heard before. Um, It's a story out of the Greek mythology, a story about uh, two guys with a quest, one guy named Ulysses and the other guy named Jason. And both of them uh, have to sail uh, on this adventure and they have to go past an island inhabited by these sirens. And the sirens sing a beautiful song. They're kind of these ocean vixens and they um, sing an intoxicating sea shanty or something, I don't know. And um, they would lure sailors to themselves and the sailors would come in intoxicated by their song and they would be destroyed on the rocks uh, surrounding the island. And I think there's some cannibalism there too. I'm not totally sure. It's been a while since I've read it. But Ulysses has a great game plan. He says, we're not going to get shipwrecked. We will overcome the song of the sirens. And so he orders his men to put wax in their ears. Um, Some of you have children that you don't have to order that. You just have to say, don't do anything to fix your problem. Uh, But they put the wax in their ears. And then he said, I want to hear the song, though. So he lashed himself to the mast. He was tied to the mast of the ship and he ordered his men, don't do anything I say. Ignore me completely. I I must hear the song, but don't listen to me so that we we can sail past. And so he heard the song and they were able to uh, get past the the sirens, but all because he was shackled. He shackled himself uh, against his desires to maintain his will. Now, Jason, however, he, uh, he had a different strategy. In his pursuit of the golden fleece, he had to face the sirens as well, although he had a different solution. Uh, he would not succumb to their song, uh, but his success didn't come from a restraint of will, a, a suppression of desire. Rather, his success came because he brought along his bro, Orpheus. And Orpheus played the most beautiful songs in all of ancient Greece. In other words, Orpheus knew how to play a better song than the sirens could sing. And so Jason and his crew resisted with ease the message of the sirens, the allure of the sirens, simply because they had the expulsive power of a greater song. They overcame desire with a greater desire. They overcame troubled waters with a brilliant and beautiful song. Let me submit to you, friends, this morning, that that is us as well. We're in the same boat. In all of our efforts to resist sin and selfishness, we won't win unless we have a stronger affection. You know why you sin? Because you like it. That's why I sin. I like like it. Temporarily. I, I think that I like it more than I like righteousness. You love it. 
or else you wouldn't do it because we all do what we love. And so the reality and the good news of the gospel is that Jesus pours out his love. He demonstrates it and then he gives us a sense of it by sending his spirit so that, as Romans 5 says, he pours out his love into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. And so you actually get a transfer, a change of desires just by sheer relationship because you experience the love of God so much so that it begins to change your desires and righteousness starts tasting better than your sin. And the reason I don't sin is because I actually like righteousness more in that area, in this moment. And so, unless we understand what Jesus has done for us, unless we have a sense of what it means to be cleansed by the Son and accepted by the Father on our hearts, we just won't triumph. We won't become serving people. We won't be able to overcome the selfishness that just is natural to humanity unless you have the power of a greater love. Unless we know, just like Jesus, that we've come from God, where we've been adopted as children of the Most High God, and we know where we're headed into the new creation with the empowerment of the Spirit, we will not be able to sustain a life of servanthood. So, last word here is that we have to get ourselves into a position to hear the song. If you want to sustain a life of servanthood, you have to get an Orpheus into your boat. Right? If you want to sustain a life of servanthood, you, you have to get yourself around the song. You have to get yourself around the love of God in a way that he can speak to you about who you are and who he is and what he's done for you so that you can understand regularly and frequently and continually what he has done for you. That he's loved you to the full. His love is complete and finished because of the work of the cross. So we have to get to places where we can connect with God in prayer. That's why prayer is important. It's relational. It's spending time with the person who loves us. That's why we need to be in the word of God to delve into the scriptures, to become formed by the story, to taste each morsel of his word and every promise and each instruction and all of its goodness because it's good. And it begins to change our hearts and our affections. And so church, if we're going to be a serving people, we have to be people who are sustained by the practices of hearing God and his word, meeting with him in his prayer, gathering with the community of his saints so that the spirit can talk to us and, and change our hearts and warm our hearts towards him. And one of the best ways right now, friends, is to come to the table and experience fresh and draw near to Christ again in a tangible way and hold the bread and the cup and contemplate again Jesus' question, do you understand what I've done for you? Do you understand what it is that I've done for you by loving you to the end? So I'm going to invite us this morning to come and receive the bread and the cup, to come to the table and hold these elements, we'll hold them and we'll take them together as a church. But while you hold them, I want to invite you this morning to pause and actually, in a concrete way, remember what he's done and ask yourself and contemplate these questions we'll put on the screen. We'll leave them there uh, for, for the remainder of, of our time together. And the questions are these. Have I allowed Jesus to wash me? Am I just kind of playing at this church thing? Or have I actually come in proximity with Jesus and said, I... I need to trust you. I, I, I need you to wash me. I had a guy right after first service said, that was me. I need, I need to pray. I need to be washed. I want to receive Christ this morning. Maybe that's you today where you say, you know what? I just need to trust that his death cleans me. And that's enough. It's sufficient.
Others of you, just to say, hey, what has Christ served me? Do I actually have a sense that I'm sustained in any way by his love? Am I trusting other loves to sustain me more? And then how will I join him as a servant? How will I be a servant with him? Not just for him, but with him in this next season. Would you consider these things as you come to the table? I invite you now, brothers and sisters, to come. Receive the bread and the cup. And we'll take them together in a moment.